welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 is a passage that we're exploring for four weeks. It is, in my opinion, the greatest Christmas prophecy. It's a prophecy that spans earthly history, and it talks about this son who is given. So hear with me again the word of God, Isaiah 9 and 6 and 7. The prophet wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's time-spanning word, as I've told you so many times. May we see it in great depth today as we explore the mighty God that Jesus is. Amen. You can be seated. Well, over the years, uh, as a preacher, you live through things that give you living illustrations. It's kind of an unfortunate uh, feature of the preacher's life. And uh, years ago, I got one that helped me understand a little bit about the fact that in a holiday and in a season that celebrates his arrival, Jesus is increasingly sidelined in Christmas. Now, the illustration was not a pleasant one, and the experience is not a pleasant one, uh, but I think from talking to some of you guys out in the working world, the corporate world, you can relate to what I'm about to tell you. There was a time when I was not in full-time pastoral ministry, and, and uh, I was out in, in the marketplace, as a lot of you know, and I did a number of things in the world of sales and marketing, and then I got into broadcast radio and uh, ended up as a radio talk show host and a program director for a Christian talk station in Sacramento, California, and it was uh, owned and operated by a a large national broadcasting company. We had a cluster of stations there, uh, conservative political talk, contemporary Christian music, and then Christian talk. And it was a for-profit, publicly traded company, uh, which meant that uh, every 90 days we were evaluated on R&R, ratings and revenue, and how we move stock price. So it wasn't all about ministry, I'll tell you that. Should have been, but uh, that that began to to slip away, and it was driven by the dollar. Uh, And I was having uh, the time of my life directing programming and being a radio talk show host every night to a large audience and making a difference, I thought. And uh, my R&R was good, my ratings were good. In fact, they were the best that they'd been for that program slot in years, and my revenue was great. My sponsors were were throwing money at, at the station and at the show, and so I was shocked when uh, within a couple of weeks of getting my new contract, um, I was called into the general manager's office and he says, I don't know how to tell you this, but something happened at the corporate level 
And politics and pencils got together, and uh, your show's been canceled. And uh, he said, if it makes you feel any better, you, you, there was nothing you could have done to stop this. Your ratings were good. Your revenue was good. And like I said, it just, it's corporate. It's politics. So in, in a heartbeat, I went from excited about what I did to what the corporate world calls downsized. Now you understand what I'm talking about, some of you people. Yeah. Downsized. I saw some... some uh, Poindexter in the corporate world kind of re retitled that one time. He was a top-level executive. He says, don't think, it of, think of it as downsizing. Think of, think of it as right-sizing. We did what was right for the company. Now, that didn't make it feel any better. And uh, I remember sitting in the, in the exit interview and, and going through all the, the exit paperwork and severance and all that stuff. And, and so my, my boss said, I guess I have to check this box as to the reason you're, you're leaving. I said, what's that? He says, it's rift. Reduction in force. He says, just it's, don't, don't take it personally, you've just been riffed. And I, he might have said I was riffed, but I'm sitting there going, I'm miffed. I'm not, I'm not riffed, I'm miffed. So anyway, I went through that, and a lot of you have gone through it. But it was interesting, the company still wanted to use my talent, and they still wanted to keep my voice on the air, and they still wanted me to do some, some broadcast work, but not the whole thing I was paid for. And so I went from... Uh, uh, full-time programming manager to a contracted voice talent. And so I, I went, went, went from full-time employee with benefits to 1099 and contracted employee. So I still came into the station a, a couple of times a week and I still did work for the company and I still got paid, but everything changed overnight. Everything. And uh, when you go from full-time to just a contractor, it's weird. It's as if you're invisible. So I would walk down the same hallways, but I no longer had a desk, I no longer had a work area, no longer had a title, no longer had stationery, no longer had a phone, no longer had a computer. And so I would come in and I had to use the conference, the, 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 the long table in the conference room to do my work. And uh, people would just walk by me that knew me and loved me for years and they walked by me and it was as though I didn't exist. Anybody ever experienced this? It's pretty rough went from visible to invisible, from belonging to being as if I was not there. And I, that was one of the most painful parts of it. But I look back on that years later as I was thinking about um, how, how life works, and, and I gained an illustration out of that. To me, that's what's happened to Christ at Christmas. It was all built around him in the beginning, was it not? And it's all about him in terms of its ultimate meaning and its essence. But Christ in Western Christmas has gotten rift. He's still in the building, but he's invisible. He's still part of the organization, and he's part of the experience, but every year he becomes less relevant, and we put more things into his place. We put family dynamics more into the place than we do worship. We put shopping and getting more into the place than we do meditating upon who he was and why he came. We put all the sentiments of Christmas and we watch more movies about all the fairy tale aspects of Christmas than we ever spend time, even as Christians, re-engaging with the spiritual story of Christmas and the birth story. It's as though he's still in the building, but he's not here. And so I, I took that whole experience and I realized what it's like to belong, but, but, but be not visible and, and to be downsized in your, own, in, in, in your own experience of worship. 
That's why I, I, I do longer series at Christmas. A lot of pastors don't. A lot of pastors will do one Sunday, maybe two, and I've always liked to take four, and I've always liked to build the season around preaching about the depth of Christmas because every year we become less able to contemplate the Christ. And so uh, I, I'm building this particular year around one of the greatest passages. I've visited with you before, years ago at Christmas, and I felt it was important to revisit this great Christmas prophecy because if you really drill into Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, you discover the depths and the greatness of Christ at Christmas in a way that I hope you'll never forget. And so I want to contemplate the Christ. I want to put him back in center stage. I want to give him the ultimate call of relevance through opening this passage for you. Now, I've chosen this passage because, according to one writer I read over the last week or so, no Old Testament prophet had more to say about the promised Messiah of Israel than Isaiah did. He is the great prophet of the Messiah. And he said a lot of things that remained a mystery until the coming of Christ. And this passage is a huge promise that Jesus was going to come into the world, and in fact, he was going to affect all of human history. One commentator said, while it was clear that, he, that Isaiah was predicting a coming world leader and a messianic age, don't miss that. In verse 7, he says, when Jesus finally comes back for good at his second coming, the increase of his government and of peace will have no end. So Isaiah 9, 6 speaks in verse 6 about his first arrival, the child born into the world as the Savior heading to a cross. But then at the end in verse 7, it talks about the fact that that Jesus who, who came the first time is coming a second time, and he's coming back as a conquering king, and he's going to rule the world. Verse 6, he comes to save the lost. Verse 7, he comes to take back the planet. And so Isaiah spans time with this great prophecy the commentator said, while it was clear that Isaiah was predicting a coming world leader, that's Jesus, the, the, the king of the world, and a messianic age yet to come, that's all in the future for us. What could not have been seen until after Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that Isaiah, Isaiah was actually predicting the arrival of the Son of God. Two arrivals. The first arrival is the babe. The second arrival is the conquering king. And in both of those arrivals, the world is going to see, see these titles about him at the end of verse 6. He's a wonderful counselor, he's a mighty God, he's an everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. Those are Hebrew names, and there are four compound names. They're beautiful titles, each one of which has magnificent, powerful meaning, and that's why I'm taking each one separately and a separate message for each. But you put them all together, and they provide this full understanding of who Jesus would be when he comes to the earth. Each name, the, the, the commentator said, forms a different window through which to view the Son of God who became the Son of Man. These four names shape our understanding of who God's Messiah is, and they help us develop a personal relationship with him and show us where to find him in our moments of need, end quote. So, this, this great prophecy spans time. Verse 6 introduces us to his first arrival. Verse 7 reminds us that he's coming again. 
And he, and at the end of verse six, these four titles describe who he has always been from eternity past, who he will always be into eternity future, and who he is today. Listen, if you know him as Savior, you can know him now as your wonderful counselor, now as your mighty God, now as your everlasting Father, and now as your Prince of Peace. The world, when he finally returns, yet into the future, when every eye sees him and he comes as the conquering king, the whole world will then acknowledge that he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Some will have rejected him and they'll recognize it mournfully. Others will welcome him and they'll, they'll find him to be the God they'd always wanted. So it, it's a, it's a time-spanning prophecy that's just so magnificent. Now what I've done is I've built the message around this, this, this prophecy and I'm going to do a few things today. That, so now getting into the outline, you can take a look at the app or you'll see it on the screen. First I want to talk about the description of Jesus in history. This first point is review. And it, you, because if you weren't here last time, it'll help you fit this prophecy into its frame. The description of Jesus in history, in, in, in other words, I want to remind you again that this spans what I just said, it spans time. And the words that Isaiah used are important. The words that he uses here talk about one key point. The key point of the prophecy is this, a unique individual is going to invade history. That's what Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 are about. A unique individual is going to invade history. He's going to come into it twice at his birth event in Bethlehem and at his return, the Mount of Olives when every eye sees him. And this person is going to have three things that are true about him. This is the review part. We'll do it quickly. First of all, he would be born as a man into history. That's the phrase, verse 6, for, us, for to us a child is born. Remember last week I talked about the fact that that's, that emphasizes the human aspect of who Jesus is. He was born into the world the way you and I were. No difference in the physical birth experience that you had and he had. He, he humbled himself and became a man. So he, he, he would be born as a man into history. A child is born. Secondly, this Messiah would arrive as God from eternity. And there's the difference between the two phrases. A child is born, natural birth. The starting of that human aspect of his, of his person. To us, a son is given. That's where he comes from eternity past as God. He arrives as God from eternity. And that's a revelation of his deity. Make no mistake, Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is the God-man. A son was given from the throne room of heaven to us. Adrian Rogers, the great old preacher of the past, put it this way. The little baby that was upon the straw in Bethlehem is the mighty creator God of Genesis 1. Think about it. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and had to learn to walk is the one from whose fingertips stars sprang and oceans poured forth. This little boy playing with the wood shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree and every hill and every mountain and every cross. He is the mighty God. So make no mistake, Jesus was God that Christmas morning. As Philip said so beautifully, it, it, his, his essence as God, unchanged when, when, when joined to humanity. It's an amazing, amazing image. 
So you see, the son wasn't born, the son eternally existed. The child was born, the son was given. There's a difference in the wording. And I challenge you to find anybody else in history that is that person. There's no one. There are no takers. So the third thing is, he was destined to rescue and and rule the world for eternity. Number one, he would be born as a man into history. A child is born. Number two, he would arrive as God from eternity. A son is given. And number three, he was destined to rescue and rule the world for eternity. That's the, the language of the government shall be in upon his shoulder and of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. One day he's coming back. So this is a prophecy that spans history. And I'm so glad because I don't know if you've noticed, but it's a dark, sinfully broken world. Have you noticed? <laughs> Into which the light of the world must journey. In Genesis, after the fall, when all of it was wrecked and Adam and Eve were stunned in the result of their sin, God judged Satan. And he says, oh, you'll rule for a while, but I'm going to send someone who's going to crush your head. I love that prophecy. I can't wait for the crushing to begin. It's going to happen when Jesus' foot sets, sets foot on the Mount of Olives when he ends time and takes back the planet. Revelation chapter 11 talks about the anticipation of the angelic hosts as they see that Jesus is close to finally returning. And they say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Oh, that's coming. He came as a baby, born as a man, came as God, arriving from eternity, and he's coming back as the God-man, and he's going to rescue and rule the world. And the broken human story cries out for someone to defeat sin and take back the planet. Now Isaiah says the only one who can do such a great feat, defeat sin, judge Satan, rescue mankind, deliver lost people, set up an eternal age, the only one who can do that would have to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the Prince of Peace. Now you say, when is that going to happen? And I told you last week, then, now and then. Now it's happening every time someone bows their knee to Jesus and they meet the ascended Christ and they become Christians and they begin to get to know the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace and they begin to experience his greatness in their Christian walk. But then the whole world will see that he is all those things. First arrival came to the cradle for the cross. Second, he's coming back for the crown and the kingdom. So that's review, but you've got to understand it to understand this prophecy. Now let's go into the heart of the next title, Mighty God. Look at it. Wonderful counselor we looked at last week who devised and accomplished the greatest and wisest feat of all time, and that was the plan of salvation, remember? Now we see him also as Mighty God. Now that's interesting. These are compound titles. You've got, he is God, but one aspect of who he is is really emphasized. He is mighty. Now we, we assume God is mighty, but here he really emphasizes it with a wonderful title in the Hebrew, which we'll go into. But let's take a look at this in reverse. You see, mighty God, let's take the God piece first. And I want to now second look look at the declaration of Jesus as God. The declaration of Jesus as God. He is mighty God. Let's look at the word God first. Four things. 
I don't know if you understand it yet, maybe you're a young Christian, but the Bible directly declares that Jesus is God. This is so important because your salvation rides on it. This is why the identity of Jesus as God is attacked by the devil through every false teaching uh, design that it has ever existed. Remember when I taught you through the book of Colossians a couple of years ago, the target of the false teachers in Colossae was to deny that Jesus is God. What's the target of every deceived cult in the world today? The number one thing they want to tell you is, oh, you're mistaken, Jesus is not God. They want to destroy the deity of Jesus because then you destroy the saving power of Jesus on the cross and the authority of Jesus through truth. The Bible goes out of its way to declare the opposite. Jesus is fully God. I'm going to run through about eight passages. You're not going to see them on the screen because there's too many and I'm just going to mention them in part. But take a look through your Bible sometime, as I did as a young Christian, and I went through and I marked the places that taught me that Jesus is God. Acts 20, 28, the Bible says that when Jesus died, he obtained your salvation. And it says, you are to, he, is, he, is, uh, he is shepherding the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. The blood of Jesus was called the blood of God in Acts 20, 28, because he is the second person of the Trinity. Romans 9, 5 is even clearer. It says he is Christ, who is God over all. Do you want something direct? That's direct. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 4 describes Christ who is the image of God. Philippians 2, 6, 2, 6 talks about he who was in the form of God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We went through that last week as he entered into time from eternity. Colossians 1, 15 says all things were created through him and for him. That's what God does. That's his exclusive right. Titus 2, 13 talks about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There it is. You can't deny that. Hebrews 1, 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 2 Peter 1, 1, and I can go on and on, talks about him as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, 1 John 5, 20 says he is simply the true God and eternal life. I think you've got enough proof now. Jesus Christ is... The Bible directly declares that Jesus is God. Secondly, the Bible indirectly proves that Jesus is God. How, how does that happen? Well, the names of God are applied to Jesus right here in this passage. I was sitting over lunch with a mentor of mine the other day who's a wonderful student of the Bible. And, he, and I told him about that text I was teaching and we looked at Isaiah 9-6 and he said, how can any cultist survive that text? He's absolutely right. It's impossible, unless they want to stop celebrating Christmas. This is a text that talks about the child who was born, and it says he is the mighty God. You do not have Christmas without the divine Christ. Indirectly, all the names of God are applied to him, like in this passage. Elsewhere, Jesus is called the Lord, Jehovah, God, the Son of God. All the characteristics of deity are indirectly ascribed to Jesus Christ. He's described as eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and unchanging, immutable. Throughout the Bible, Jesus Christ is regarded as equal with God the Father, and he's worshipped as God. 
And then, of course, Jesus Christ himself claimed deity. He taught his disciples to pray in his name. He claimed that he and the Father were one and that he was the Son of God, the co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful second member of the divine trinity. He claimed that to know him was to know God, to see him was to see God, to receive him was to receive God, to believe him was to believe in God, and to honor him was to honor God. You don't get more clear than that. So I've just given you about eight or ten direct references in biblical statements that say the Bible directly declares that Jesus is God, and then all of that through the ministry and the presence of Jesus in the Scripture indirectly proves that Jesus is God. Thirdly, Jesus himself personally showed that he is God. How did he do that? By taking authority over all creation like God would. How did he do that? Through the endless miracles that he performed in his earthly ministry. He demonstrated total power over the natural world by dealing with it supernaturally, didn't he? He demonstrated total power over physical disease. The Bible lists time after time after time where everyone who came with any kind of affliction went away clean, went away healed. Nobody who ever came to Jesus with a physical need was turned away un unhealed. Go through your record, you'll never find it. He, he demonstrated total power over the demonic realm, the supernatural realm, total authority, total power over sin. He forgave sin with a word, with total authority and total power, and total power over death by blowing out of the tomb and rising from the dead and raising other people from the dead. Did he not? Those are all the domain of God. Power over nature, power over disease, power over demons, power over sin, power over death. You know, people look at, at Jesus working the miracles, and some people have an incomplete understanding of why, they did, why he did that. I've heard some pastors teach that he, he did it just to gather a crowd, just to get their attention, so that they, they would listen. Oh no, it was far more than that. He did not just do that to get their attention, but to direct their attention so they would know something, namely that the one who is in your presence is God. I'm doing this to show you that I am God Almighty. I'm not doing this to wow you. I'm not doing this so that the crowds will get bigger and then I can teach deep truth. This is not a, a teaser. This is not some technique to draw in people into a circle so they'll pay attention to me. No, I'm directing your attention to the fact that I'm Almighty God. And if you wanted to see that and, and, and accept it, you did. The Pharisees on the edge of the crowd rejected it and said this is from Satan. They sealed their eternal death warrant with that decision. But others who wanted to really know who he was and who were struck over the, the, the nature of their sin and the, the amazing presence of who he was, they began to see that truly this was the Son of God. I just love all those times repeatedly where Jesus gets the disciples stuck out on a boat in the middle of a lake during a storm. You know how many times that happened? More than once. Now why would he do that? Doesn't he, I mean, it's pretty irresponsible to do that to your best friends over and over and over again. He did it because he wanted to put them into extremity in the realm that they were the most terrified of, the realm of nature and waves and, and the, the, the realm in which they knew they could die. 
And just at the point when the waves are overwhelming the boat and they're frightened at the water in the boat, Jesus comes. And suddenly either the the storm is stilled or, or they're already at the other side. Either way, they stopped being frightened at the water in the boat and they started being terrified and stunned at God in the boat. Do you understand that? That's why Jesus put them in that situation over and over again because miracles were not just to get their attention but to direct their attention so they would know something, namely that he was God. And you know what? My Bible still says after all the years of knowing Jesus, my Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can expect him to be the master of those domains in my life. I can expect him to take care of me. I can expect him to provide for me. I can expect him, if, if it is his will, to have power over, over the, the challenges in my life in every realm. Power over nature, power over disease, power over the demonic world that, that threatens my life and torments me as a believer. Power over sin so that I can grow in power and authority over sin instead of being chronically dominated by it. And I am definitely trusting that he's still going to have power over death when my death comes. How about you? I'm not just talking theology here. I'm talking realology. This is the same Jesus you've got to walk with going into this next year. I'm not just dusting off an Old Testament prophecy saying, isn't the Hebrew fascinating? No. Oh, this is the Jesus I'm trusting. And that brings me to the fourth thing. Not only does the Bible directly declare that Jesus is God, indirectly prove that Jesus is God, Jesus personally showed that he's God. That means that true Christians don't just believe in Jesus, we worship Jesus. Did you get that? We don't just believe in Jesus, we worship him. He is almighty God. He's not just a figure in history that died for you. He's almighty God who is alive, risen, now present in you through the person of the Holy Spirit and who is living and active and walking and working in your world. And therefore, he deserves your worship. John Piper, I read some time ago, said this. We Christians are a people who worship the Lord Jesus. Let that sink in. We worship the Lord Jesus. We don't just admire him. We don't just put intellectual confidence in him as a religious or philosophical figure. You see, you can have confidence in a philosophical position today and lose it tomorrow. We don't just follow him either. We're not just Christ followers. Because you can choose to follow someone today and maybe someday choose to follow somebody else tomorrow. Isn't that true? We see that happening all the time. Because people treat Jesus as a commodity who currently meets their intellectual or personal desires or satisfactions or curiosities. And so it's transactional, our Christianity today. We either come to believe in him as a figure of history who, who did a certain thing at a point in time, but then somebody comes along and challenges our understanding of history or whatever, and we begin, we begin to lose our faith. No, my friend, you can, you can lose a philosophical conviction very easily, but you can't lose a personal relationship with an almighty God that easily. He says, you can choose to follow someone today and maybe somebody someday choose to follow someone else tomorrow, but you can only worship one. We worship Jesus. I love that. 
We worship him as God Almighty, omnipotent, eternal, never having had a beginning, all-wise, creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe. We worship Jesus as God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. We worship Jesus. He He concludes by saying, there are places in the world where that worship will get you killed. And there are places in the world where that worship will make you unkillable, as we shall see. You believe that? So you take a look at 9.6, and it says, Mighty God, I just spent about 15 minutes emphasizing the last word. He's God. Maybe you're a young Christian and it's all just kind of colliding in your mind. Let the word of God teach you and deepen you. He is God. He's not just a dusty figure of history or a human being who achieves something great. He is almighty God. Now, we'll go to the third part. That's the distinction of Jesus as our mighty God. Notice this is a compound name. In other words, it's a modifier. He's not only God, but there's something mighty about him. It's a distinction that makes a difference. He's emphasizing that he's God, and of course we believe God to be strong, but he's emphasizing the power of God. You know, it's interesting, God always has these names of intensity, and I, uh, I did a midweek Devo, you know, years ago on the names of God. I went for a year on it with you. Still never got to the end of it. But I was fascinated by the compound names of God. El is the, the generic word for God in the Hebrew E-L, and and there's modifiers that are attached to that. There's a whole string of them. Maybe you know some of those names. El Shaddai. How many of you know that? El Shaddai. God, the all-sufficient providing God. I mean, we we need eight or ten English words to describe. El Shaddai. El Elyon. God, the most high. It's a call to worship the exalted, universe-arcing God. El Olam, God the everlasting, the only one that could author and keep eternity for you. Well, you're going to love this one. This is one of my favorites as I studied it. Mighty God in the Hebrew is El Givor. El Givor. Let me explain this to you. What's the meaning of the name Mighty God? Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says this. This name is the compound Hebrew title El Givor. And both parts of the name need to be understood. God, or the first part of the title is El, E-L, in English, the singular form of the word Elohim. In the Old Testament, this referred to the one true God. In fact, the word El in the book of Isaiah never means anything but God. Mighty, Givor, came from a, a related verb, Gavar, which meant to be strong, to accomplish, to excel, or prevail. It's from a root which is commonly associated, listen to this, with warfare. This is important. And it has to do with the strength of the successful warrior. Thus, this adjective means powerful, strong, brave, mighty, a warrior. Now, now that's important because it means that God is mighty in how he wages war for you. That's why this is in here. When Jesus has to take back the planet, defeat Satan, destroy sin, judge the nations, and, and end the curse, do you think he needs some power? Yes. He's going to war against sin and against 
all that has destroyed this planet, you, be, uh, you better hope he's coming with game. He needs to be El Gavor, a mighty warrior. He needs to be one who can wage war. William Vine, W. Vine, an expository diction of Old Testament words. Look at him. It says, in the context of battle, the word is better understood to refer to a special category of warrior. I love this. The Gavor is the proven warrior, a warrior who's undefeated and undefeatable, invincible. Edward Young translates it, a god of a hero. That is a hero who has the characteristics of God. El Gavor, God the mighty one, a hero of a god. 150 times in the New American Standard Version, champion twice, great one once, helper once, hero three, and most of the other times just as flat out mighty. So I put my own translation on it. El Gavor, mighty God, the hero God who always wins. That's the God I met today when I studied this. That's the God I met afresh when I went back to this passage. That's the God that I'm calling on today in my life and my walk. I need a God who is the hero God who always wins. The devil I'm facing, he only has to win against me once to take me out. I'm fully aware of that. I need a God who never loses once. I need a hero God. I need a mighty God. I need a God who is a hero and always wins, an invincible warrior, and praise God. That's what Isaiah said he is. Now remember, I said there's two times when he's going to show himself to be El Gavor. One is at the end of history when he, he defeats evil and sin, judges it all, and brings the planet in, into what God wants. But now you can meet him like that any day as a believer. That's so precious to me. I don't know about you, but I've got battles. Oh, you don't? Oh, I've got battles. There's three ways in which he moves as the mighty warrior in the life of the Christian. In salvation history, that's when I met him. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Various translations use the word power or authority. Do you think when you got saved, supernaturally, it was an easy thing to do? Colossians says you were part of the kingdom of darkness. You were under the dominion of the devil. When you got saved, do you not think that was an act of war? When you got hauled out of there and made a, a member of the kingdom of light, do you not think that that was a supernatural victory? Do you not think that it required power and authority for you to say, I belong to Jesus now? No matter what your life was, no matter what your sin was, no matter what your track record was, no matter how many people said how wicked you were that you would never change, when you found Jesus, some power must have taken a hold of your life. Oh, you had authority and power. Where'd that come from? El Gavor and your salvation, the mighty champion. He swept you out of out of hell's future and he puts you into, his, into, into a heavenly future. Praise God. Not only in salvation history, but in human history, he's going to demonstrate this, like I said, when he comes back. Revelation 19.11 says that John saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. When he takes the planet back, it's going to be a war. And he better be the mighty God who can do it. And he is. 
No question about it. And thirdly, in every Christian's history, you know what? I've got battles, so do you. My Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That's an image from a conquering Roman general leading his defeated enemies into the city. I've got spiritual warfare, friends. So do you. In fact, you're in worse shape if you don't know it. And I'm fighting battles all the time. So are you. And somehow, he's committed to lead me in triumph. May not look like it or feel like it, but if I hold to him and his will for my life, it's triumph. He's got the supernatural authority to do that in the battles of my life. Now all of this truth, as I bring it to a close, the last point, there's a difference that Jesus can make. In at least three wonderful ways. Remember I said, you don't have to wait for him to return. If you know him now, he's your wonderful God, wonderful counselor, your mighty God right now. The first is he saves our seeking hearts. Like I said, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power to become children of God. Maybe you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus Christ. You're here in the Christmas season or you're watching this and you you don't want another year like you've had. You know you need to come to know God. You need to get set free from your sin. You need to to, to get out of the years of darkness and start living with someone who can change your life. He's got the power and authority to meet you right where you are. And if you call out to him as your savior, seeing your sin for what it is and the savior for who he is, he has the power to answer you can do it in a heartbeat your seeking heart can be saved second he stands with our fearing hearts he stands with our fearing hearts if you're a Christian you walk against a lot of supernatural opposition And as the days darken, like I said, I chose this text because of the darkening days we are in. I see evil rising. I see Romans 1 being fulfilled. And I see deep, deep battles on the horizon for people of righteousness and faith. We're going to have to learn to seek him in deep new ways. But I'm so thankful that Isaiah's promises are still true. He was mighty God then. He'll be mighty God tomorrow. Isaiah 41.10, I memorize this as a young college-aged Christian when I began to taste spiritual battle. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many times I've just crawled through my spiritual battles knowing that somewhere I was behind the crease of his hand. No other explanation for it. He's good for it because he's Del Gibor, the mighty God. I don't know what you're battling right now. In fact, you may be battling something so intense you can't tell anybody about it. Well, you go let him know. He'll stand with your fearing heart. He'll stand with you. He's done it over all time. Hebrews 11 
32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Remember old Gideon? Knock kneed old boy hiding from the Midianites. But God says, I'm done with my seeing my people be oppressed. I've chastised them enough. Now I'm going to deliver them. And it sends an angel to the Lord. The old knock kneed Gabriel hiding in a wine press. A, a Gideon, rather. And he says, Oh, Gideon, man of valor. Gideon says, who are you looking at? <laughs> How could Gideon be a man of valor? Because a God of valor came to visit him. You're not a man or a woman of valor. You never have been. Neither am I. But I happen to know a God of valor. And when he shows up, I stand in him. And God gets all the glory. What did God do with Gideon's army? Remember that? When Gideon finally said, okay, Lord, I think I can do this. And God says, okay, first, first things first, how big's your army? I don't know. I forget what the numbers are, but it was, ten, it was like 32,000 or something. God says, that's too many. And the Midianites were like 100,000. And he says, too many? Yeah, you know, whack that down to, I don't know, I forget what it was, a few thousand. Gideon says, is this okay? He says, no, nah, that's still too many. And you remember the whole story. They go down by the brook, and God just narrows this down to a few hundred and sends old Gideon out with the silliest battle plan of all time to defeat an enemy that had oppressed them for a generation. And he just says, remember, man of valor, the angel of the Lord is with you. Who won? Gideon. The knock-kneed Gideon against tens of thousands. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Barak or Samson coming out of personal failure to final triumph. Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Oh, Gideon. Were they people of valor? No, but a mighty God showed up. I just love that. And thirdly, he keeps our doubting hearts. Sometimes the battles of life don't have fields of battle. They have the realm of fear and anxiety, and doubt. First Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, under God the great champion, El Givor, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Take heart, my friend. He's our mighty God. He's never at a loss. He's never overwhelmed. He's never surprised. He's never defeated, and he's never ashamed. One author said, you and I may feel powerless, helpless, and even hopeless at times, wondering if there is anyone who can rescue us, but in the midst of it all, Jesus is our ultimate hero. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I don't know what areas of your life you're going to bring to the Lord as the new year comes where you need a hero. 
Maybe you're alone for the first time in many years through the loss of a spouse. He'll be your hero. Maybe your health is turning away from you and you look at trembling hands and parts of your life physically that they're rushing away as aging comes. He'll be your hero. Maybe you're looking at family tensions that just don't seem to have an answer for another year. He'll be your hero. Whatever it is, he's good for it. He will stand with you. So, uh, do you have a downsized Jesus? Thank you. You may feel like it, but no, you don't. I don't know about you, but a downsized Jesus is not enough for my upsized problems. It's just not. But none of my problems compare to my great hero of a God. A lot of people today, this year particularly, as they watch what's going on, they're saying, what's the world coming to? And as I often say, well, I know who I keep going to. <laughs> El Gibor, a hero of a God who's never been defeated.